some of us find ourselves on center stage, making our living by releasing the trumpet's golden tones into the air, captivating audiences worldwide. Others among us may be more prone to engage in spirited discussions about its intricacies, its legendary players, and the unforgettable moments that have shaped its journey. But no matter our background or ability, Trumpet Dynamics is our harmonious sanctuary, a podcast that tells the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. A haven where we explore every facet of this wondrous instrument, delving deep into the minds and hearts of those whose energy breathes life into a simple piece of plumbing. Join us as we venture through time, tracing the trumpet's storied origins from its humble beginnings to its modern grandeur in orchestras, jazz clubs, recording studios, university halls, and beyond. Through insightful interviews and captivating anecdotes, We'll hear the wisdom and experiences of virtuosos, teachers, historians and enthusiasts alike. And now, let the symphony of trumpet dynamics commence with our founder and host, James D. Newcomb. Welcome to the show, everyone. Glad you're here. I'm grateful that you have pressed play on today's episode featuring the great Vinny Shashelsky who was introduced to me by previous podcast guest, Del Lyron. And we had a wonderful time, so much so that we decided to record a round two. What you're going to hear in this episode is round one, where Vinny and I were basically getting to know each other, just chewing the fat a little bit, seeing where the great winds of dialogue take us. And then things went so well that we decided to get together a couple of days later for a part two, and part two goes really, really deep into, we don't talk that much about trumpet technique or pedagogy, anything like that. It's more of the why. Why do you do what you do? That is really what gets my blood boiling or really what gets my, pikes my interest when it comes to doing podcasts. I have my own way of doing things when it comes to playing trumpet, and I'm, I guess I'm an old dog. And I'm just not open to learning new tricks. So <laughs> I have my ways of doing things and they work for me. And I'm, I, I don't feel a need to discuss anything else when it comes to that. Other people want to discuss it to their hearts to content with it, which is fine. But that's not really the purpose of this podcast. We, uh, we, we got into some really intensely personal things. And it all comes down to how trumpet or music, specifically trumpet, ties into our why of what we do. Now, before I get into the interview with Vinny, I've been working on a project and it's a two-pronged project. One is written and the other is audio. And the audio is ready to go. And I wanna make you aware of it. The written is still a work in progress. It's gonna be done soon, but it's going to be a book. Well, it is a book. It's an audio book titled Pinpoint Persuasion. Pinpoint Persuasion, a practical guide to ethically manipulating people in your environment to get what you want when you want it. What it is, is a series of podcast interviews that I've done over the years, as well as some, I guess you'd call them persuasion, motivational sales training type books that I've recorded. Uh, among the selections are The Go-Getter by Peter Kine. As a Man Thinketh by James Allen, Obvious Adams by Robert Updegraff, Success and Failure by Robert Horton, all in the public domain, all are available for whosoever will to um, cultivate uh, 
redistribute as they see fit. And uh, so those are the audiobooks, and then uh, interspersed th- throughout are some podcast interviews that I've done over the years on the topic of sales, persuasion, purpose, things of that nature. If you want to listen to the audios, as I record this on the 15th of September, 2023, the, it's, all it is is the audios that are available. The print is coming very soon. I just have to do some editing. But I, I want to make you aware of the audios. Go to pinpoint-persuasion.com. Pinpoint-persuasion.com. For the time being, this is a free offering. It might become something that is uh, a paid type of thing where I put it on Amazon or Audible, something like that. But for the time being, take advantage of it. Pinpoint-persuasion.com. Great stuff. Really great stuff, and you'll like it. Uh, totally free for, for the time being. Pinpoint-persuasion.com. All right. We are about to head into our time with Vinny Shashelsky. Vinny is based in Nashville, Tennessee. He is the founder of Vinny and the Hitmen, and you'll understand what Hitmen means when you hear from him in just a couple of moments, but he's appeared in thousands of recordings. I think 7,000, his website says, that he has uh, appeared in, and all without the use, well, I'm going to let Vinny share some of the challenges that he has overcome physically and emotionally and really inspiring stuff. So let's turn it over to my conversation with Vinny Shashelsky, part one, and then part two will also be available uh, at the same time that this part one publishes. So make, make sure that you listen to both because you can't have one without the other. Okay, Vinny, anything that you say from here on out can and will be used against you in the court of public opinion. I'm good with that. I'm okay with that. <laughs> is it is it Vinny Seselski? Did I say that right? That was very close. Okay. Um, about 20 years ago, I was out in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Uh-huh. And we, we were there, a little band that was playing the theater for four or five days. And, uh, of course, at our hotel, you could go down in the basement, you mm-hmm. could get a massage or any of that steam bath and all that stuff because it's a hot springs. And this beautiful, older German lady absolutely butchered my name. I don't even remember what she said, but you have to imagine with a name like Shashelsky, I've heard thousands of iterations. And I decided at that moment to just say, oh, my gosh. You nailed it. How did you do that? Nobody ever does that. She puffed up, man. She was so proud. And she said, I'm from Chicago. A lot of Polacks up there. <laughs> and and I just got such a tickle out of it ever since then, no matter what anybody says, unless they're really sincere. Usually they say, how do you pronounce your name? And I say, Vinny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and right, they rolled it, her uh, up. So it's Seshelski. Shelski. Shishelski. Shishelski. Okay, she shells Shishelskis by the Shishorskis. Yeah, I've got to do it. And spelling it over the phone is just the C as in Charlie, I-E-S as in Sam, I-E-L-S as it's because people just, I get F's in there and just, it just comes in the mail and it's just, the cool thing is my bank will take anything. Honest to goodness, worked for a band leader years ago. He filled out the check and C-I-E-L-R-Q-P-Z-W and I signed that sucker and took it up. I was nervous. And they were like, thanks, Vinny. <laughs> so, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Don't spell it the way it sounds. That's exactly right, man. Oh, right. Lordy. But it is Polish? 
it is Polish. My dad was actually adopted and his birth name was Biancanelli. So I would have been Vinny Biancanelli. Just you can see me, James. Nobody else can. But if I called you on the phone and said, hey, James, I think you owe me $100. <laughs> this is Vinny Bianconelli. You'd be on my way to the on your way to the house with I'd cash be, or yeah, pulling out my card and <laughs> where do I sign? So you're a trumpet player which is has a whole like a whole thing and then you're Vinny Bianconelli. Good lord. I if I was born in the 50s I sure would have been Sinatra's lead player if I was Vinny Bianconelli. So there you go. The band which started a couple years ago Vinny and the Hitmen which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. We're doing a we're doing an original record end of this year. It'll be out mid two twenty four, but it's going to be called Vinny and the Hitmen Kiss the Ring, <laughs> and the cover art is just going to be this signet ring that my father he took an old ring of his and for one of my landmark birthdays thirty or something like that he had a he had a he had it designed and all that stuff and it really looks like something that the dawn of trumpets would wear so i think just a picture of that i think it'll be cool kiss the ring yeah. i can't wait to see it so it's uh it's Vinny and the hitmen what's the name of it Vinny and the hitmen h-i-t-m-e-n Vinny and the hitmen we started but what's the name of the album the kiss the ring the record will be kiss the ring it's not out yet we've got a christmas record out called a public domain christmas we keep all the money parenthetically and we're gonna add that's 10 songs we did last year man it was incredible how that worked we recorded it october 16th and 17th and 18th we did 10 songs in two days at a big studio out in franklin tennessee which is a suburb of nashville and uh, man it turned out great so we're gonna add public domain tunes four or five a year over the next couple of years, this year we're printing CDs. It was a digital release because we did it in October and had it mixed, artwork done, everything ready to go by December 1st, which is, if you know anything about record production, that's like crazy fast. Yeah. So it's a really cool, it's a really cool little record and we're looking forward to adding on to it. So the name of the album is Public Domain? The name of the album is Vinny and the Hitman, Hitman Christmas. I'm sorry. No. Vinny and the Hitman, public domain Christmas. Parenthetically, we keep all the money. We're on Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. So it's a cool little band. Nine horns, three trumpets, three bones, three woodwinds, and rhythm section and percussion. We covered Get It On by Bill Chase. I'm really proud of that one. And it's there's no vocalist. It's all instrumental. So Roy Agee, my good friend, who's out with Eric Church right now and has done a zillion records. He was Prince's last trombone player. That's a highlight on his on his resume. He plays the lead on that thing, and it you're convinced. You can sing the words, and it's really cool. But we do rock and roll and R&B and pop instrumentally. So we're doing everything from Chase and Maynard all the way up to Billie Eilish, and and Lizzo and all those different kind of things. And basically what we're doing is we're trying to go into the schools and give the kids permission to love any music that they want. But if you come to Nashville, it's, say you graduated from North Texas, this is a true story with a master's tenor player, smoking jazz player. Oh my gosh. And I said, hey, he's a young guy. I said, hey, what do you want to do? He said, I want to play jazz full time. And I said, you're in Nashville, right? <laughs> that's the that's the first thing. Second, how do you propose to do that? Because if you go to Rudy's, which is the 
killer jazz club here in town and you show up on on the jam session and you have your horn they only charge you half cover so you're still paying to play i told them i said you got to learn songs like uptown funk and september and old school stuff like shotgun and and land of a thousand dances because if you're going to play in a commercial band or a wedding band or a corporate band which are paying insane amounts of money for the top bands you could work one or two nights a week and then go play whatever you wanted the rest of the five days. But if you don't have a handle on those songs and know them already, you're not going to, that's a, it's a good way to, it's a good way to come into town, start making a living right away. You're living in a house with nine other people. Your rent's only 300 bucks, but it's a really good way to try to get things started. So Vinny and the Hitman is going out to high school and college jazz festivals we present as a small big band but then we open up with demolition man by the police and people freak out so we're starting to get a nice little following and i'm really excited about it that's like a pipe dream that everybody has in some shape or form like this one individual that you talked about said i just want to play jazz full-time yeah you can play jazz full-time but define full-time you can't make a living playing jazz very maybe a few can but you certainly can't write out of college. Yeah. Maybe you could do a stint with the uh, one of the big bands and be on the road. And, and I think that's a good alternative. That's when I came out of college, I really wanted to play lead. That's what I thought I was going to do, play lead in a service band or, or something like that. And I got started playing R&B, and I didn't discover Chicago, the band, until I was 20 years old. I had heard them, but I really dug into them when I was 20. I just wasn't exposed to it when I was a student or when I was a kid. And I just started to eat them up. And then I moved into Jerry Hay and Gary Grant and Bill Reichenbach and all the stuff that they did for Al Jarreau and Michael Jackson and every record forever in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. And as recently, Jerry's still writing incredible stuff. But when I grew up, that's who I want to be. I want to be playing like that. And I want it to be arranging like that. It's just phenomenal. <clears throat> I went to a, my alma mater and asked the students there, and the guys that were leading the program, if they had heard a song called Imagination by Al Jarreau. And if you listen to the first lick of that and your heart rate doesn't go double, you, you should be doing something else. And none of them had ever heard of it. So I got them a recording and I got them the chart. And the day after I left, five or six of the trumpet players were in the practice room listening and trying to play that opening lick. So I just think it's real important to, I think, Classical music is incredible. It's just absolutely amazing. And I think that our roots, our fundamental roots are in classical music. You can play, you can swing Arben's number two if you want to, but really it's rooted in that fundamental technique. And, and these are the things that kind of teach you. Then you get the tools to play classical music and all of those skills transfer over to jazz because if you're, creative enough and you're knowledgeable enough you're starting to create in your mind and now you have the facility to to put it through the horn and take it out the end of the horn and pop combines all of that stuff because if you listen to chicago as an example there's a tune baby what a big surprise where he plays piccolo trumpet lee plays piccolo trumpet through the whole thing and does a really nice job but i really think in order to make a full-time living Based on my experience since I was 17, I'm 60 now, 
have to be able to do a lot of different things. Later in my career, I never really had a dream of being a principal trumpet with a symphony orchestra, but I gave that up because I just really dig the commercial side of music. And so that's been my focus since then. Sorry, I'm totally hijacking the conversation, Jameson. Sorry about that. It's all good, man. It's all good. How did you get started on trumpet? Tell us the year. How old were you? What got you wanted wanting to do it? 1972. I was nine years old. <clears throat> and there I was in South Florida. And there was a South Florida in the early 70s was littered with American Legion and VFW drum and bugle corps. This is when they were playing single piston rotor two valve came along and I was in the plantation drum and bugle corps and I was a big kid. So they put me on bass drum. There was about 20 drummers and we would march around this, this pool table at a community center. There It was a big a frame. I just remember it like it was yesterday. Learned the first page of the rudiments, learned 13 of my rudiments. I was getting pretty slick on the drums and Bob Spears, who was the head of the drum and bugle corps, Younger guy, probably, I thought he was 100. He was probably 21. <laughs> he put his arm around me, said, come here, kid, check this out, and took me over to an adjacent room, which was the bugle room. And they had Sears and Roebuck straight F military bugles. I remember the packaging. It was a white box with a blue bugle on one side and a red bugle on the other. All four sides were covered with that. I took it home, and my dad had played trumpet when he was a kid. And he taught me taps. And of all things, the first night, Reveille. And I sat down with him every night for about a week. And he took me in the kitchen and said, listen, Jerry, my mom, this kid's already better than I ever was. Let's get him some trumpet lessons. Yeah, there you go. And for my birthday that year, I got a silver Bundy trumpet with one of those blue silver speckled cases. I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. I picked it up and I started studying with a guy named Al Carroll. Al was a jobber down there in South Florida. He would tell me all the time about how he went to the nursing home and played cherry pink and apple blossom white and the ladies just loved it. And so he was married. She taught all the woodwinds. He taught all the brass. A couple things about this guy. <clears throat> Al never told me the trumpet was hard. Not a word. Never said, this is going to be difficult. We're going to, something we're going to do today is going to be hard. Never. One day I walked in and I was probably in a pretty crabby mood. And he said, what's up, kid? And I said, ah, just having a bad day. And he said, stop right there. You don't have bad days, especially when you're playing the trumpet. You have good days and you have great days. And it sounds like a small thing, but if you can make that transition I think it helps you be a little bit more positive and a little bit more moving forward in a positive direction. And uh, he really emphasized sight reading. He would, we would start to sight read. He would just open up the St. Jacob's book. We were working out of the St. Jacob's book. I was nine years old. It was half speed, but he would play something and I would mimic it. That was the great thing about him. That's what I think all great teachers do. They play and you emulate. And then from their style, you pick what you want almost naturally what you want in your own style. And he would have his hand, I would sit to the right side and he would sit to the left and he would have his hand hovering over my left knee. 
And if I stopped, this is old school, if I stopped sight reading, he would grab my leg and squeeze. I thought it was as hard as he could. And I, oh my gosh. And he'd say, all right, never stop. Never stop. Even if you make a mistake, never stop. Because let's just do a scenario. You, the band leader puts his baton up and he counts you in and you miss the first note. Can you raise your hand in front of a crowd of people, in front of the band, in front of the maestro? Can you raise your hand and say, wait, I made a mistake. Can I go back? The answer is no. And that really left an impression on me. And then the third or fourth thing, he was just full of good stuff. One day I came in and he said, Vince, at the time, we are going to play in the upper register today. And I said, okay. Again, I've been playing for three or four months. And he said, I'm going to play a note. It's called a C. It's just above the staff. He showed it to me in the music. And he played it, put some Harry James vibrato on it. It was beautiful. Held it for eight beats, cut it off clean as a pit. And I played a high C, and I put a little Harry James vibrato on it as best I could. We went all the way up to F that day. And I think back and wonder, like, this guy must have just been peeing his pants on the inside. But he was so cool. He never said, not a lot of people can do that. This is going to be difficult, all that kind of... And that set such an incredible foundation. I found out much later in life that trumpet can be a little bit difficult, but <laughs> at the time, I just didn't think so. Practice for 30 minutes a day. A lot of wisdom on his part. Oh. He obviously knew that it is extremely difficult. I yeah. think physically, it's the most physically demanding of any instrument. I think I read that somewhere. I wonder if French horn might be a little, because the bigger the mouthpiece, seemingly, the easier the horn is to play. As you get smaller, it becomes with compression and air and all that stuff. But those French horn players, man, I got to say, those partials are so freaking close. You have to be so deadly. I, th I think I read it somewhere, but maybe trumpet and French horn are neck and neck for the lead. But very, very physically, just on a very physical physiological level is ex extremely difficult. But your teacher, Al Carroll, he didn't say, this is difficult yeah, man, because no. when you're nine years old, you know, you're going to be freaked out. Sergey and we were talking about Al Vizzuti, and I think they were born in a magic trumpet closet. When God said, you want to play trumpet, they were at the front of the line. But <clears throat> the thing that you said that was really cool was it's a state of mind. Those guys believe with 100% of everything they have, they believe that they can play anything at any time. And I think you have to be fearless. And that that's a big challenge. The mental game of trumpet can be a huge challenge. But I think I got a good foundation and blissfully ignorant of, for the first five or 10 years of my career, that trumpet was anything but something you held in your hand, you put it up on your face and Beautiful stuff came out. Sometimes beautiful stuff came out. Then I discovered <clears throat> when I was in 10th grade, I told you about Chicago. I didn't really hear Chicago until I was 20. I didn't know who Maynard Ferguson was until I was a sophomore in high school. And boy, did I dig into that. And much to my parents' chagrin, I bought every record that was out and tried to play along with them up in my bedroom, feebly tried to play along with them up in my bedroom and you know, for hours. And I'd go in and run my mouthpiece under some cold water and put it back on my face and get another 15 minutes out of it. It was pretty cool. It just uh, And you look at Maynard and there's pictures, I forget which record it is. There's a picture of his face on the back of it. 
when he's playing. I forget what record it is. Might have been one of the MF ones or whatever it was. But he was a he was really an effortless player, but he understood marketing. And so that whole thing when he would cut off and he would just make a big deal out of the cutoff. Man, I, Vinny, I have to interrupt you because yeah. the uh, the person the people that I was talking to just before I spoke to you was Paul Barron and Bobby oh, I Medina. Love Paul. I Bobby, love Bobby. And we talked about this exact thing. I think the way it went was Maynard just told his trumpet section, you guys are boring. You got to make it look hard. <laughs> Stan Mark, Stan Mark stood back there. Horn never moved. He'd take a big breath and he would just brains out second best trumpet player in the world but maynard with all the gyrations and the hip thrusting and all that kind of stuff he really listen he was a showman and maynard was smart man he played in the big bands when the big bands were really happening kenton and everything that he did marvelous lead player great soloist and then in the 50s maybe late 50s early 60s he did that record called stratospheric are you hip to this record okay it's bebop clean but it's up an octave or two nine pete non ed he had and that's a great record and then through the 60s he went through his stuff and then at the end of the 60s he started playing pop music instrumentally and that is when he really started to appeal broad-based it wasn't just trumpet players and guys that were fans of big band it was i've heard that tune on the radio and i love this version of it he crossed over pretty hard and that's when he that's how he was able to keep a big band in some form or fashion on the road for almost 30 years you know what i mean and if you've been in that band that's all you have to say you walk into a gig and they say well, i don't know who you are what have you done and you say i just i was out with maynard for a year that's it you don't have to say anything else because he had a very high standard and and he was a huge enormous influence on me it's not always pretty it is a vibrato you can drive a truck through but stylistically and showing people the limits of the horn in the popular world not just people who listen to jazz know who cat anderson is people who listen to maynard may not know who cat anderson is you know what i mean and i think that was i think that was brilliant i think that was brilliant and uh, yeah awesome that's really insightful very interesting way to look at it. Who are some of your other major influences as a trumpet player? Doc Arturo from Tower Power, the original trumpet player with Tower Power. I would say that those guys, I listen to a lot of different people, but it changes all the time from what I'm hearing on, I listen to Sirius and what I'm hearing on there and, and different people. And there's some local guys that are great trumpet players. Mike Haynes is a guy who grew up in Tullahoma, which is uh, some miles from Nashville, but here in middle Tennessee. And he was drum corps brat, marched with the Blue Stars, I think it was, in 79. He was the, he was the sideline lizard. I don't think he did a lot of marching, but he, he played the that stuff he's been he's been a huge influence because he's a great lead player and when you sit next to him or under him in a section every time he plays it's an education i, I love that guy and he's one of the nicest human beings he's so not a trumpet player when it comes to just the way he runs his daily life he's a great husband and father and he's an incredible guy and, and he would definitely be in that one of those trumpet heroes, Jerry Hay, Gary Grant, Chuck Finley, of course, Mr. Bergeron, 
I recently had a, I've never met him in person, but we've talked over the phone several times. And I think a lot of his playing. Lewis is a Drowsdale. He's a, he's another one that's just, they're showing such facility and such versatility. I think it's incredible to marvel at a great classical trumpet player. I, it's just some of the stuff that they're able to do with multiple tonguing and tone and super soft and then really beefy, just the versatility. Who sticks out that, in your mind as a great classical trumpeter? Nashville, uh, the Nashville Symphony has been around forever. They were uh, glorified all the way up until probably when I got here in the early 90s. They were a community orchestra, but they always had money and they were able to bring in some great players. But there, there wa it wasn't a full-time orchestra. And then as time went on, there's a guy that went to MTSU, Jeff Bailey. And when I first met Jeff, Jeff could play anything on the trumpet as long as it didn't go above a high C, a C on top of the staff, just above the staff. It was amazing. Just such great facility, perfect intonation, perfect tonguing, perfect, just a perfect trumpet player. And then he won the principal chair with the symphony and the symphony because of him and a lot of the other great players that they got. Now they're like, they've won multiple Grammys. They're doing great. They're a real high percentage on like the way they rate those things is like the orchestra makes 75% of its salary from ticket sales or 80% or 50% or 30%. Nashville's way up there, even after the pandemic and some financial things with the giving and all that stuff. They've really crushed it. Jeff Bailey is a flawless trumpet player. I've played next to him many times and I can count the number of audible mistakes the guy has made on two hands. It's remarkable. And now he plays well up into the upper register. And if you wanted a lead player, I don't think he would like to do it, but he could. High. Oh, absolutely. High A's, double C's, just nothing. And he swings. That's the cool thing. And that's what I was going about. The guys that understand the value of pop music, the guys in the classical world that understand the value of pop music. I think that's awesome because pop often pays the bills. There's a little orchestra here called Orchestra Kentucky, I think is what they're called. And they do a series and you have to buy the whole series. Okay. And they do five big pops concerts. They do the Beatles, they do disco, they do seventies rock and roll, like yacht rock and all that kind of stuff. People love it. And the same people that are coming to see the disco show are like, Hey baby, I love that disco show. Let's go see this Mozart fella. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's brilliant. It's brilliant. They've gone from church orchestra to filling their, their up in Bowling Green, Kentucky. They have a 5,000 seater up there and they're filling it up for their concerts. It's remarkable. People are coming in. They're getting great players. Jeff Reed is the maestro up there and the mad scientist behind that and, and just understands the guys that, and Jeff Bailey was one of those guys. He understood the value of pop. Because he did sessions, he was in the gospel world, rock and roll and swing stuff and all over the place. But he really, he swings as well as he plays classical trumpet. And I think that's, and he's able to shut one off and go to the other. And I think he's one of the, I think he's one of the contemporary, one of the greatest principal trumpet players out there. And now they've replaced him since with William Leathers. Are you hip to William? Yeah. 
He's 21 years old. He just graduated with his master's early from Juilliard. And the, the guy owns the trumpet. If he picks it up, beautiful stuff is going to come out of the end of it. So he's a, he's, I would call him a generational player. If he stays on the right track, when he's 60 or 80 years old, people are going to be going, people are going to be listening to recordings of him and using it as the only reference for that particular piece of music. Phenomenal. Got a good head on his shoulders. William Leathers. He's a, if you want to talk about an interview, that kid, he's had a, and he's from, and he's Canadian. So he's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully I can, maybe I can touch base with him. I interviewed Jeff's son, Preston, on this podcast. I love Preston. A what, a, years ago. what a remarkable player he is too, yes. man. I mean, that, yes. that apple fell straight down from the tree. He's, he's and a great kid too, man. Yeah. Great kid. He spoke very highly of his father, very fondly of his father. So oh, yeah, nice. absolutely. Yeah, Jeff's a good guy. You're talking about tying classical music and pop music, but what's interesting is that what we call classical music was one time pop music. Mozart wrote opera because that's what people listen to. That was relevant in the day. Wagner, his stuff was relevant to the social situation of Germany. Mahler. His stuff was relevant to the times. And so we, we give it its due respect, but at the time, that was popular music. Rite of Spring caused a riot because of the social overtones in it. And so popular music today is 100 years ago, I'm sorry, 100 years from now, people will look at the Beatles and they're going to call it classical music. I think that definitely the way movie scores are going to like John Williams in a hundred years will be as highly regarded as Mozart or Wagner or any of those guys, in my opinion, any of those guys, because he's creating, listen, man, if you can go to one of those concerts, one of those Star Wars concerts or any of those that they do now and not be sitting there completely thrilled and tapping your toe at the same time. It's remarkable. It's really remarkable. And see, this is where the disconnect is, in my opinion. And again, Vinny and the Hitman is trying to emphasize this. I got a late call with Nashville to do a disco show. So disco was strings and horns. That was a heyday in the late 70s. We went from playing, horn players went from playing rock and roll and adding to taking over the lead lines of the music. And I went down and, of course, most of the guys in the section, most of the players in the section were playing on C trumpets, which, which is fine. They were all blending. I was blowing my brains out on high G's and above on my commercial setup. But like the interpretation, like a good classical player finds a recording of the piece they're going to do, listens to it, finds several recordings, finds a favorite recording. And they listen to it, and then they form their interpretation oftentimes from something like that. So I think you can do the same thing with popular music. The disco stuff is widely available. Disco Inferno or I Will Survive or whatever it is. And the same way you study the classical stuff, you would study the pop stuff. And then that way, even though it might not be your favorite thing, even though it may be greatly distasteful to you, it was a four-night series and it was sold out. People were scalping tickets outside. Okay? And that pays a lot of your, as a player, regular player, 
that pays a lot of your salary. You know what I mean? One night of ticket sales is probably your yearly nut. And when you've got a half a house for one thing and a sold out house for another thing, you have to pay attention to the economics of that. So I told that one of the trumpet players came to me and we were on a break, 20 minute break. And he had his piccolo trumpet and, and he was, I said, what's up, man? What are you doing? He said, I got to go get some of this disco off me, which I thought was hysterical. Straight classical player, really good player too, man. And a great human being. I really liked the kid. We got to talking about it a little bit. And he said, Vinny, how am I supposed to know how these songs are, are supposed to go? I wasn't even alive when they were on the radio. Just think about that for a second. You know what I mean? So every piece that you do, if it's been recorded, you find that recording and you listen to the recording. At least you may not interpret it the same way, but you're going to get a reference. If your maestro says, I want you to listen to the 1963 Chicago Symphony Orchestra recording of this, because if we can play it like that, we're going to be kicking some butt, then that's what you're going to do. So what I say is, find the 1978 recording of Donna Summers doing I Will Survive and approach it the same way. And I don't think the jazz and commercial guys are giving their specific players permission to listen to classical music. And I don't think that the classical teachers on a college level are encouraging their classical students to listen to pop because the best and most well-rounded players can play the snot out of Wagner, but also be able to do the trumpet solo in, in, in the The principal, the acting principal played it and did a wonderful job if it were placed in the middle of a Mozart piece, not <laughs> in a disco piece. Okay. And it, this is not a criticism at mm. all. It's an observation. It's an ob it's an observation. And I that really cemented it for me because it was right before we were starting the band. And I thought the future of all kinds of music is at stake all the time because of money, because of your telephone. When you can Google something and get 10 million answers to that question in a 17th of a second, it's hard to look and say, if I start something on the trumpet today, it's going to suck. But in six months, I'm going to have mastered it and it will become a part of my regular thing. Sorry to pontificate, but it's okay, so, so important. Why do you think this is that a classical player would just have this kind of a snooty attitude towards pop music? Why is that? Is it just you know, a lack I, of maturity? I, or? I just don't know, man, because it's not a lack of maturity. It might be a lack of maturity, but it doesn't cross over once you hit 40 years old and you enter the age of wisdom. Suddenly you like pop music. Wait, there wait, are so 40? is the age of wisdom because I'm over 40 and I don't think I've hit that yet, so it made me a little nervous. Well, think about how you think about how you feel about stuff now compared to when you were 21 because when you were 21 you were we were all a bunch of dummies and now it's a bit better but I don't know where it comes from. If I could find out and write a book about it that would really appeal to I think a c compare and contrast. We did the the Beethoven piece I don't know what it is, maybe the fifth, that they turned into a disco tune. And listen, it's all grounded. It may be a it may be a complete abomination to somebody who plays the classical version of that. 
But this is what that did, just like Jeff Reed in Orchestra Kentucky. There's a guy who's never heard the original recording of Beethoven's Fifth. Am I quoting it correctly? It's the fifth? Okay. Because I don't want to I don't want to seem any dumber than I'm at, than I actually am. But there's a kid sitting somewhere in the late 70s who heard that and then said, that melody really speaks to me. And maybe then went to the library or to where he could get a record and found that and became a classical musician as a result of that. There's so many things that are similar. First of all, there's only 12 notes. There's only so much you can do with them. And a lot of the stuff that's rooted in classical has vamped over to jazz and certainly over to pop. I think part of it is pop, some pop music. Now, if you listen to Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen and think that's not a complicated piece of music, you're incorrect. You're incorrect. But if you listen to some of the stuff that I grew up with in the 80s, any of the four chord stuff, it's not as complex and it can get a little repetitive and it can get boring, but that's really the point. If you're trying to get somebody to get up and shake their tail feather, you're not going to play giant steps or Cherokee. You're going to play, I will survive back to that. You know what I mean? So I think it's just a lack of complexity. And I think it's a old school attitude in some educators that you can't be both, but I think you can. You know what I realized? Because I've lived in Asia as well. I've lived in Korea and Vietnam. And you hear some of the classical stuff, you hear that put in a modern context with disco or electronics, whatever the case may be. You hear it a lot over there. And I realized, because I my preference is classical. If I had my druthers, that's all I would play. Not necessarily listen to, but play. And I... There was a time when I would just roll my eyes at stuff like that. That's stupid. That's what are they thinking? They're just, they're besmirching the good nature of Beethoven and Bach. But then I realized, if Bach were alive today, four hundred years later, and he were to hear a piece that he wrote in the context of modern music, would he be offended? He'd probably be tickled pink that his music is still being be, played. I think he'd be thrilled. I think he would be thrilled. And I think that's what movie music is. And back to the John Williams thing, movie music is the classical music of the future. Now, there are some great pieces being written and performed that are being written today. But that really, a lot of those soundtracks have taken the best of classical. You're talking about a 60 or an 80 piece orchestra recording live. A lot of times they are sight reading. And it's the first or second take. And if you listen to some of this music, it is beautifully written and beautifully performed with the best of the classical world and the best of the pop world mismatched up into some really incredible. The first time I saw, <clears throat> this is a cool story. I was in Los Angeles on a tour in the late 90s and one of the guys in the section knew Gary Grant, so he set up a lunch. And, of course, I'm just nervous as, a, as all get out because Gary's one of my heroes. Sat down across from me. We talked for a couple of hours, and it was like my best friend for 30 years. And he said, so what are you, what are you into? I said, man, I just saw Batman with my kids at the time, my stepson and VJ. 
And the first time I watched the movie, I really didn't watch it. I listened to the sound check track. There were two trumpet players and one scene in there that were sitting on G's just above the staff, octave above the staff, and trilling them commercially in perfect unison, perfectly in tune, two trumpet players trilling those notes. And it happened. It was reoccurring. And I'm telling this story and I was gushing about the soundtrack and I was just like, oh my God, it was just such great music and really incredible. And I had to go back and watch the movie a second time and just divorce myself from the music because I could pay attention to the movie, which we did. And Gary very humbly said, that was me and Chuck Finley. And I was like, oh my God. Which Batman was this? It was the very first one. The very first one, I think it came out in 93 or 94 Wait, or something with like that. Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson? Do you remember? Yes. That was yes. 80, it was late 80s, I think. Okay. okay. I didn't see him until, I didn't see him until probably 95 or 96. A guy like that, and that guy can play the trumpet. He can play almost anything. He knows his limitations. But those guys out there, it's just not higher, faster, louder. It's all over the map. So the movie soundtracks, I think, are really important. And that will be from the 40s, 30s and 40s on. They'll just be repeated and repeated and repeated. Uh, have you seen the movie Punchline with Tom Hanks? He plays a stand-up yes, comedian. Yes. Opening credits of Punchline is a wonderful trumpet solo. And I looked it up and I watched the movie. This is, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. I looked it up and the trumpet player was Phil Smith. Nice. Yes, yeah, it was. And it was wonderful playing. Wonderful. And oh, it, yeah. And I just, some website, but it's Phil Smith. And there's no attribution, there's no Phil Harmonic, but it was just said Philip Smith. Does Phil cross over? And he probably subs out the pop stuff, but I'm guessing that with the way that he plays and his interpretation of everything I've ever heard him play, he could play anything he wanted. He's another one of those guys. He could play anything he wanted. If you wanted him, if he had the desire and you had the desire to hire him to play lead in a big band, I bet he could crush it. And that's the thing. Th these guys have the facility now. The difference, sometimes the difference in equipment, because if you're playing a one birdbath, you may not be able to sustain high Gs and double high Cs and all that kind of stuff for a long period of time. But I think with a little bit of I think with just a little bit of redirection, the experience that we've had with Vinny and the Hitmen is that kids are free. They're singing the songs that we're playing instrumentally. It's really amazing to, it's going to be, we have four new cover videos coming out first of September. And there's some shots of some of the school gigs that we've done where the teachers and the kids were singing and choreographed along with whatever song we were doing at the time. A tribute to our drummer, all of our live footage matches up completely perfectly with the studio footage so he is yeah steve eby yeah he is like a machine man the most prepared musician i've ever seen in my life he used to do it with a ring binder but he's got an ipad and he's got his little shorthand sits on a stand goes to the tunes got tempo and it's got all the transitions in his language and he never misses anything. I've never played with anybody. There's a lot of great drummers, and I'm not taking anything away from any of them, but this kid is on the ball. Yeah. I mean, what's his name? Steve Eby? 
Steve Eby. He's a staple here in Nashville. He's been here forever. He teaches and he plays gigs and he does sessions just like everybody else. And, and he's a good, he's a real good, the coolest thing about the whole thing is he's a great human being. That just makes it like, I like hanging out with him. And that's not always the case. That's the other thing about, and it's not just in the classical world, certainly, but when you start bumping heads with commercial guys or jazz guys or classical guys, you got to be a good hang on the gig, man. And that's not something you can fake, in my opinion. I know that a lot of times in some of the bands that have been around for a while or some of the orchestras that have been around for a while, people just kind of show up and do their gig. But for me, like at this point in my career, I want to sit next to, next to somebody who's who I can cheer for and who I love and who does the same thing for me. Because too often in the sessions, when I first got here, you could almost feel people saying, miss it. And now, because of the people that I surround myself with, I hear, you got this or go get it. And it just makes it easier to, somebody said to me the other day, it was a huge compliment. I forget who I was talking to. Oh, I was talking to John Daniels. John's a educator in Minnesota. I, I don't know the name. I want to, it's not Bemenji. Anyway, he's a great teacher, very esoteric, believes in God, but also believes in chakras. And just, he's an, and he's an incredible player. He does all these cornet solos he's working on now because he wants to do a little tour. But then he plays lead in a big band, and then he goes and plays in a jazz band. The guy's just all over. And he plays in funk bands. He's all over the place. And he said to me, he said, I listen to the stuff that you put up online. I do like little 15-second snippets of just the horns from almost any session that I do. Just to just get a peek into my world, and people who don't do it are fascinated, and they'll contact me and say, well, yeah. How long did it take you to write this piece of music? I didn't write it. I made it up as we were going. How long did it take you to record this five-minute song with five trumpet stacks, three flute horn stacks, and a bass trumpet stack? Man, it took about an hour and 15 minutes. But just, it's such a different. He said, when I listen to it, the overriding thing that I hear is joy coming out of the end of your horn. Man, I just, there is no higher compliment in my mind. No higher compliment that... And no matter what kind of music you're playing, whether it's the type that I do or the type that you prefer, people can hear it. Even if it's an angry piece of music, you know what I mean? That and Wagner made the French horns the hero of life. Didn't he? You listen to soundtracks now, and whenever something cool is about to happen, you're going to hear a French horn. Whether it's ripping up into a note or soaring and just, it's incredible. I read somewhere the other day they used 12 French horns and four trumpets on one of those movie soundtrack sessions. And I was like, yes, it's my favorite thing to listen to, man. It's just incredible. And I think that's thanks to, to Mr. Wagner. I really do. Cause he turned them into, he, he turned them into the heroes of the orchestra. I think. He gave f composers of the future a tool to use yes. a point of reference. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I attribute, Absolutely. I attribute movies to keeping orchestras alive. Maybe not a hundred percent, but, that's the reason that average Joe is familiar with an orchestra is because they heard. I could not agree more. I could not agree more. And if you are sitting in a classical situation, because if you're making, yeah. there are orchestras across the country that you can go in and do 80 services a year and make $13,000. But there are orchestras that are paying six figures to the principal players. Six, man, to blow in a tube 
or pluck a string and it's amazing and to not be just an just incredibly grateful no matter how gifted you are no matter how much you've practiced listen man god gave me a thimbleful of talent and i have stretched it and kneaded it and rolled it over again but i practiced a lot i already played for an hour and a half before you and i got on the zoom here and i'll play another two or three hours today because i don't have i don't have a session or anything on the books so that when one comes up tomorrow i don't suck we all practice. We're all voracious practitioners. We've all been given a gift. But to not be grateful for what we've, in combination with the universe of what we've been able to do with that gift, I think it's a travesty. And that's the other thing that Vinny and the Hitman, all those guys are like-minded. So when I say, hey, let's stay after for 15 minutes and talk to the kids about their future in music, None of them even blink an eye. If they have a gig, they go to the gig. You know what I mean? But they hang and they talk to these kids. And these kids want to know, how did you get from where I'm sitting in my chair in ninth grade to where you are making records and being on TV and all that kind of stuff? It's just, it's really a gift. And that's the way we ought to, that's the way we ought to treat it, in my opinion. That's the way I try to treat it. When you're standing in front of a group of people or when you're on a podcast like this, James, let's say you have... A thousand people listen to this thing or 5,000 or 10,000. doesn't matter what the number is. If you're standing in front of 350 students or a thousand students or 10,000, whatever it is, there's one person that's going to glean something from this. And it's probably what Al Carroll said to me. You don't have bad days. Change that, make that little change. And I promise you that in 10 years, you're going to find me and you're going to thank me for passing that on. And I will... I'll say a word up to old Al because he's been dead for a million years. But just that you don't have bad days, you have good days, you have great days. If somebody takes that away from this and it changes the course of their life, I know that if somebody like me or somebody like you had showed up at my high school where my band director was a clarinet player and didn't really know anything about the trumpet, this is what I got all the time. I got the hand all the time, you know what I mean? And just never, never encouraging, always discouraging. If somebody like me had shown up at the high school and just sat with me and said some of the things that I've said just today, it would have given me permission to do what I wanted to do. I didn't know how I was going to get there, but I knew when I was bouncing cassette tracks back and forth, recording one and then playing it and playing along and recording it on the second one, I was multi-tracking when I was nine years old. It was destiny, what I was going to do with my life. But somebody to encourage you and point you in the right direction, not maybe say to you, yeah, I should have a backup plan, although I think that there's some merit to that and all that kind of stuff. But if you're not giving it your all, 100% all the time, don't look up in 10 years and wonder why you're not where you want to be because you got to be on it all the time. That does it for part one with Vinny Shashelsky founder of Vinny and the Hitmen. Show notes for today's episode can be found at trumpetdynamics.com forward slash trumpetvinny1. Now you have to spell Vinny correctly. It's V-I-N-N-I-E. Trumpetdynamics.com forward slash trumpetvinny and then the number one. Trumpetvinny1. And since you're here, and since you're listening to the podcast, you owe it to yourself to listen to part two, because it's great. I'm just going to leave it at that. 
And the show notes for that, as you might imagine, are trumpetdynamics.com forward slash trumpetvinny2. So thank you for listening, and I bid you farewell, unless you're going to turn right over to part two, in which case you'll hear from me in just a couple of minutes. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. For more captivating episodes and exclusive content, visit our official website at trumpetdynamics.com. You can dive deeper into the interviews, discover additional resources, and connect with your fellow trumpeters. Also be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and even leave a rating and review. It really helps with the visibility of the show. Until we meet again, may your fingers be fluid, your breath unimpeded, and your chops ever fresh. Play hard. 